When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdel Jabbar. What's up, brother? Chilling, man. As per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. I just realized, well, we just realized that this is our 300th episode. Yeah. Time flies, man. And I had no idea. So it's 300 episodes in like two and a half years? No, excuse me, six and a half years? What am I talking about? <laughs> well, usually we do something. We're like, "Oh, it's our 200th episode. We got to do something funny and cheeky." Yeah, right. on that episode. I, I guess we've done so many that they just start uh, blending together. Maybe we'll do something for 500. We'll see you in a few years. <laughs> yeah, we'll do we'll do something for 500. But yeah, didn't even realize at all. 300 is like a big number for some reason. It's a big. It's a big. Uh, it's a big uh, achievement that you've been doing this. For, for yeah, so, I think long. so I'm, I mean, we're only 65 episodes away from being able to say you can listen to a bro history every single day for an entire year <laughs> and not listen to the same episode. <laughs> Things to strive for. I wouldn't recommend it, though. I think yeah, you would right. go insane. Yeah, probably. Um, we talked about some dark shit, this episode including. <laughs> yeah, so today's episode is going to be pretty sure it's going to be a two-parter just because the the notes that we've compiled together are almost 40 pages long and we're not going to be able to get through it in one episode it will be a four-hour podcast so we're going to split it up and i guess my my first question for you and we were talking (laughs) about this before we started recording so there's been something i've been i've been thinking about for a while and maybe you can help me um you know, come to a conclusion or, or advance my thought on this. What okay. do you think the difference is between an ideological and an ethnic conflict? <laughs> Talk about a loaded question, man. Um, that's a, I feel like that's really tough to, to, to answer. I mean, on initial inspection, I feel like all ethnic conflicts are ideological conflicts right because like inherently the nature of any conflict is two opposing things right so you know if if it's an ethnic conflict it's generally not unless it's like pure racism or something like that it's generally not just a you know you're one color i'm another color i hate you you know, it's, 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 it's a, a matter of ideas that are different, right? I, I hate your ethnic group because X, Y, and Z and not 
strictly because you are that ethnic group. Of course, we see that escalate to to that point. You know, like in in many cases where you, know, you can use the 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 Nazis and and Jews as an example, right? Like by the point that we get to the Nazis putting Jewish people in concentration camps, sure, there's a level of just you know overt and blatant racism that that has no you know no for some people has no real ideological grounding but even then you could still ask the question of a nazi and say well, why is it that you're putting these jews in a concentration camp and they'll probably give you some bullshit around like oh you know they took over the world bank they were the reason why we were you know we lost the war or like well, you know they took our jobs or they name any number of bullshit you know reasons uh that that don't really justify what what they're doing but their reasons nonetheless, right? So I feel like to answer your question in a, in a shorter way, all ethnic conflicts have to have an ideological component to it, right? So there's a difference of ideas there. But I don't think that you can say the same in, in reverse, right? I don't think all ideological conflicts are ethnic, right? Because you and I have ideological conflicts on the show frequently, right? We have a difference of opinion about something, um, and that's that has nothing to do with either of our ethnicities. What do you think? Well, well, you know, you have to break down what you see as an ethos. Like, is an ethos something that you really feel in your bones? Like, is that really part of your identity? Or is an ethos something that is manufactured by your environment? And ultimately, is it an idea? You know, is it an imagined community? So if it's an imagined community by its nature, then, then, you know, nationalism is mm-hmm. an ideology, ideology. Right. Um, but I don't know, maybe, you know, it's something that it's kind of like a scary place to, to put your mind in because, you know, you, we, you know, we live in the 21st century. You don't want to be like, well, my ethnic makeup is part of my identity. But I guess a, a more serious question or another question is, what do you think is more violent, an ethnic or an ideological conflict? Um, that's even harder to, to answer. And you can I, throw my... you can throw in theology as as a as part of an ideology. Yeah, I mean it, that's that's hard to say. Uh, I'm trying to like rack my brain for like historical evidences here, and I feel like. The first thing that my brain jumped to was like definitely ethnic ones, right? Like, cause you think about any of the conflicts and it's generally, you know, two ethnicities that are belligerent against one another. However, on second thought, I keep coming back to the idea that all of them stem from some ideology. So therefore all conflicts are a conflict of ideology, conflict of ideas. So I want to say ideological Especially then if you're saying that, that religious conflicts are ideological conflicts, which in truth they are, right? Like my idea of, you know, a God, it might be different from someone else's idea of a God. And when those two come at, you know, at blows with one another, it creates a, a conflict. And, and yeah, there's been you know, thousands of years of those kinds of conflicts. So I, I got to say that the ideological ones are more dangerous. The ethnic ones seem to be a bit newer, uh, in that perspective, right? Because um, the, the ideas of our ethnicity are quite modern. I feel like you know there there are 
obviously examples to the contrary, right? There are people who claim to have, you know, ethnic identities that span thousands of years, um, Chinese, Jews, you know, you name it. But, you know, today, I'm trying to think about like what we're, we're, we're would you consider Americans as an ethnicity? <laughs> you know, like, I don't think so. Right. Well, I think you could at this point, but that's an argument for, or a conversation for another day. So sure. I would consider if, if the could, Israel. It would be new, right. <laughs> and, and therefore well, wouldn't necessarily have as many, um, conflicts of that ethnicity against some other ethnicity than, than say an ideological one, like a religious one as an example. I don't know. Well, then, then you can go down the rabbit hole and just call a religious conflict a political conflict because usually when religious conflicts start, they may start they from their genesis might be a disagreement over like the the lineage of Muhammad in the case mm-hmm. of Islam between Sunnis mm-hmm. and Shia, or right. in the case of the wars between Catholics and Protestants. Um, you know, do you have a direct relationship with God, or or should there be a pope and a hierarchy of bishops who? you know, should, should study and, and, um, right. you know, read the word of God to you. So you understand it. Maybe it starts out like that, but the, you know, the actual conflict in the, in the, in the 30 year war was a political conflict. Um, the, the, the war between Sunnis and Shias in, in Iraq and Syria was a political conflict at the end of the day. It was, it had to do with, uh, religious nepotism and political favoritism. Um, you know, the, the, the lineage of Muhammad was was maybe a motivation for maybe the most extreme religious fanatics. However, just going back to that, I feel like ideological conflicts are much more violent than ethnic conflicts because I guess the nature of an ethnic conflict, your goal is to just remove them from society via expel them if you want to make like an ethnic state. So I'd put, I'd categorize Israel Palestine as an ethnic conflict. It's really not an ideal, an ideological, um, you know, one's not fascist and the other is a communist you know, they're, they're fighting over land and it's, it's really ethnic rights is, is what the, the root of the problem is. World war two and you know, the wars preceding or after World War II between communist and and anti-communist were ideological wars. And the reason why I believe that ideological wars are more violent is because in order to win an ideological war, you have to see a human being as vessels for that ideology. And that ideology lives in their minds. So the only way to extinguish it is through extermination, which would happen, which is what happened in World War II between both mm-hmm. the Soviets and the, and the National Socialists and the Third Reich. You know, it really was this battle of ideologies. And then you see a lot of the violent wars after that. I mean, the Korean War was extremely violent. These Koreans are the same people. The North and South Koreans are the same people. Yeah, that's They're really good. fighting over good, an ideology. <clears throat> right. So it's a really good point. What makes a lot, us, of, a lot of people for like view the, the these conflicts in the realm of like this country or this ethnicity versus that country or that ethnicity when when you know the the, the 
the easy way to look at World War Two on the, you know, in many ways is like the Germans versus the Russians, right? Uh, or the Germans versus the British and the U.S. Or the Japanese versus the, you know, the U.S. Right? But if on on closer inspection, it's it's actually you know this ideology, national socialism versus communism, or national socialism versus you know, democracy, I guess you can call us, right? Liberal, liberalism. <laughs> liberalism. Would be the best way. Yeah. Um, I'm not yeah, even saying that as a pejorative. I'm just saying that's that's how... It's that, accurate, right? Small L. Mm-hmm. But um, it's... Whenever I study World War II, I'm always confused. I'm like, where to where to place you know, World War II? Because in reality, it's all... it's it's. It's everything wrapped into one. It's an ideological mm-hmm. war. There's ethnic conflicts. It's all rolled into one giant bloodbath. And hopefully there's a, you know, rhyme or reason why we started this episode off like this. But <laughs> yeah, I just, it was a, something I was pondering and, and maybe there could be some clarity on it from doing this um, because we'll be talking about Yugoslavia a lot where... You know, I guess the first thing you think of when you think of Yugoslavia is ethnic conflict, but right, right. Actually, the first thing a lot of people think about for Yugoslavia is what's Yugoslavia. (laughs) Yeah, what is what is Yugoslavia? I guess most people don't think about Yugoslavia. Not anymore. Today, today we're going to be talking about the really the the large scale ethnic cleansing campaigns that happened in World War II. And specifically, we're going to be focusing on the Germans. And to get even more specific, we're probably going to be focusing primarily on the Germans in Yugoslavia. And we'll get into that. But just to set the stage. So in the later period of World War II and and, uh, the years preceding, so mainly, you know, from 45 to 1948 or so, between 12 to 15 million German nationals or ethnic Germans were forcibly expelled out of the various regions that they were living in. So it was the largest transfer of a single ethnic population in modern history. So just to break it down, and these are just rough estimates, but I think most historians agree upon these. So five to seven million Germans were expelled out of the former Eastern territories of Germany acquired by Poland and the Soviet Union. So that's include, that includes Prussia. Two to three million Germans were expelled out of Czechoslovakia. 700,000 Romanian Germans were displaced, over 400,000 Volga Germans, so these are Germans who settled by the Volga River in in Russia, they were forcibly uh, transferred to Kazakhstan by the Soviet Union. Um, About 150,000 Germans were removed from the Baltics, roughly 100,000 were were expelled out of Hungary, and roughly 200,000 Germans were expelled from Yugoslavia which is going to be our main focus. And you're going to be like, well, why are you going to be talking about Yugoslavia when there's only 200,000 Germans who were removed while, you know, Poland and Czechoslovakia are in the millions. The reason why is because the violence that took place is probably, it was probably the most violent expulsion out of all the, out of all the uh, theaters in World War II. So out of these 12 to 15 million Germans who were ethnically cleansed, Around half a million were killed. So some put that at a higher number. They're like 2 million is a number that's thrown out there. But 
It's safe to say at least 500,000 Germans were killed during this, these ethnic cleansing campaigns. And uh, this primarily takes place in Eastern Bloc states, so places where, where you know, communist parties took over, or the Soviet Union uh, took over. Um, also, there were, that wasn't just, it wasn't just Eastern Europe. It was also in the Netherlands and France, there was some brutal um, expulsions of Germans as well. And to put this into context, Germans were not the only people being expelled. So any, any group that was, you know, alleged to have sympathies with the National Socialists, they were also targeted and often expelled from their, from their countries, um, not to the same degree. But an example would be the, Crimean, the, the Crimean Tatars, who were expelled out of Crimea uh, into Central Europe for collaborating with the Third Reich. Crimea was completely depopulated from its native population, completely gone. There's, there's virtually virtually none left. Um, and I'll quote I'll quote Winston Churchill, who was a proponent of the, these campaigns. Expulsion is a method which, insofar as we have been able to see, will be the most satisfactory and lasting. There will be no mixture of populations to cause endless trouble. A clean sweep will be made. I am not alarmed by the prospect of disengagement disentanglement of populations, not even the large transfers, which are more possible in modern conditions than they've ever been before. Yikes. So it wasn't Clean just a Soviet sweep. policy. It was also mm-hmm. a policy of, of, of um, other allied powers. Clean sweep. Yikes. I mean, you know, imagine hearing this today, right, about any ethnic group towards any other ethnic group. Like, it would, it would feel revolting. But I guess Imagine if there was a, a real life example of that going on right now. Let's not go there today. <laughs> let's not. Let's just not do that. Just not today. <laughs> All right. We'll we'll save that for the follow up. But yeah, just <laughs> right. imagine if that was happening again in the Ooh. modern in a twenty first century. Yeah. Imagine. All right. Well, let's let's get back on track. Let's talk about why so many Germans, you know, were living in other states to begin with, because I think for most people, people don't really study German history. It's, it's not abundantly clear that, that Germans were kind of everywhere all over Europe. Um, uh, you know, the modern context of Germany, the, the state that we know of as Germany today is, is quite small in comparison to it historically and the areas which German people settled in. And so I kind of want to break that out just to give you like some context as like, why were there 15 million Germans outside of Germany? Um, so there were there were settlements, German settlements spread out all across Europe. Uh, we had Germans living on the Baltic coastline in western Poland, in the Czech lands, uh, Slovakia to Slovenia, uh, even Transylvania in southwestern Romania, um, the Ukraine uh, and and the lower Volga region, the basin in 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 Russia, were pretty much everywhere, kind of spread out all over the place. And also places in the West as well. You know, there's there's uh, disputed territories in in uh, both the Netherlands and France with Germany, uh, which we'll talk a little bit about uh, as we move on as well. But they were kind of everywhere, and that's something important to understand. They weren't. Yeah, just they made in... their way to South America too. Yeah, well, and they made their way. I mean, how many Germans? <laughs> I mean, Germany, Germans, Germans are the lar- were. I don't know what the if they still are, but Germans at the time of World War II were the largest ethnic group in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Or not? No, 
I don't know, um, they were the largest, the largest national heritage was from, you know, German speaking countries. Yep. That's true. So these are people that migrate. Was the right. point they is. go everywhere. Right. And that brings up like the question of like ethnicity versus nationality and all that other stuff. But we're just focusing on like German heritage or German ethnic groups outside of, you know, the, the areas in which we would, you know, typically place a German. Yeah. And, so and pre- I'll add one, a lot of the reason, a lot of one of the reasons is that Germans are often in demand because Germans, you know, come from industrious backgrounds. So, yeah. you know, they're known to you know, create economic development opportunities. So right. oftentimes they're invited into countries. Mm-hmm. And we'll definitely get into that as well. Um, so before the 20th century, these populations were, you know, understood as like local German speaking inhabitants with strong, like local and regional identities that were connected to where they lived. So a German in Czechoslovakia was very connected to Czechoslovakia and the lands and was you know very integrated in that, in that particular area. Uh, uh, society and, and 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 cultural identity. However, they just happen to be of German-speaking descent, and they still speak German, right? So that's their ethnic backgrounds. Kind of like in in America today, right? We have anything Americans, right? You know, we have ethnic groups of all over the world that are here in the United States. We're nevertheless United States citizens, and you know, might engage in in the same way that any United States citizen would, but they have ethnic or cultural backgrounds elsewhere. So that's not a foreign idea. Um, these, you know, they, they were tied to these regions and, and you know, going back centuries, in some cases, all the way back to the 1300s. So it's you know, not, not like a new thing of having a German diaspora everywhere. They're very much a part of the political landscapes in these countries or in these regions that they were in. And before the 20th century, most of the Germans um, of the East uh, Central Europe areas certainly didn't see the German state that formed in 1871 as like, that's their fatherland, right? They were from wherever they were at the time, you know, that's, that's where they considered their home. And, uh, Germans have, you know, obviously this long history of migration across Europe that we're kind of painting a picture of. They, they, like, like you said, Henry, they were often invited, you know, into various European kingdoms for like economic development reasons. In in many areas, uh, Germans were, often part of the wealthy class, you know, uh, who would have a tremendous amount of political capital. And this kind of starts to change after World War One, when the Habsburgs, the Russian, and the German and Ottoman empires all collapse. And then all these new states like Poland and Czechoslovakia and, importantly, Yugoslavia appear on the map. And before, and before, you, jump down our, before you jump down our throats about Poland not being a state prior to the yeah. Polish Republic... The mm-hmm. Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the, the legacy state of Poland, was, an, was a multi-ethnic state, just like the rest of these empires, where yeah. Poles were only like 40% of the population. So that there that was a multi-ethnic state as well, where they had to manage you know different relationships with different with different groups. Right. The new Poland. The, I mean, the new the new Polish state that was yeah. created afterwards that was a hyper-nationalist state that exactly. was that was built on was built on you know, a combination of the Polish language and Catholicism. But um, right. I just know someone's going to be like, hey, what the fuck? <laughs> They're in the comments section. Poland is a thing. <laughs> yes, Poland is a thing. Um, okay. Ethnic Germans basically were, were living, you know, across all of these empires that suddenly, you know, 
dissolved. And now these ethnic Germans find themselves in a new state that, for the most part, in a lot of these areas are prioritizing ethnic purity. Um, and the Paris Peace Conference changed everything. Here's a, here's a quote that we found from um, historian Gary Cohen that I think might elucidate us a little bit more on this. So it says, Woodrow Wilson, as World War I approached its end, promised new governments and new borders in Central and Eastern Europe based on the free national self-determination of peoples. But the actual arrangements after 1918 seldom met that standard. In many cases, after 1918, the Paris Peace Conference simply approved borders that corresponded to old historic demarcations, such as those for the western half of Czechoslovakia, or simply rewarded those interests who came out of the war on the winning side, at the expense of the losers in the war, such as Germany and Hungary. Plebiscites were eventually held after 1918 for a few small territories that were subject to the most heated disputes, like the Tsarland or Upper Silesia, but otherwise, the Paris Peace Conference generally decided the new borders over the heads of the people. The Soviet-Polish border was not settled until the Treaty of Riga of 1921, which ended a bloody war. That settlement proved most favorable to Polish interests and made for a Polish state with a large Ukrainian minority in addition to millions of German speakers and Jews. As a result, the new Poland was about 70% Polish-speaking Catholics. Throughout the East Central Europe between 1920 and 1938, one in five people found that they were that they belonged to a linguistic group or nationality that was a minority population within the states in which they now lived. It's pretty fascinating. Do you know, it's basically, go ahead. Do you, do you know what the Polish-speaking Catholic population is now in Poland? It's like ninety, uh, uh, close to ninety-five percent or so. Whoa. Okay, they really condensed there, I guess. <laughs> because of what happened after World War II. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this is pretty fascinating. It's basically like pointing out the, you know, the, the idea that the Paris Peace Conference was supposed to, you know, allow for self-determination of peoples, but the actuality of it turned into just, you know, a, a couple of people with, you know, that were on the winning side got to draw the borders. And that's what you want to know about that. So before World War I, the, the empires of Central and Eastern Europe presented themselves generally as multi-ethnic entities, and for the most part, they honored the cultural rights of their different peoples, even if some of the groups would have more privileges than others. So new states that were formed after uh, were very hyper-nationalistic ethnic states, just like the, the example of Poland that we, uh, that we talked about. You know, They declared themselves as a state for you know, FYZ ethnic group. And, you know, that's, that's how it ended up. You know, Germans found themselves to be, you know, in, in these areas that they, that they inhabited, they became politically vulnerable minorities, you know, in these new states, like, like the Polish Republic or Czechoslovakia or Yugoslavia or Romania on and on. And this is why many ethnic Germans eventually turned to the Third Reich, uh, which results in Germans being collectively punished for the crimes that were committed by the Third Reich. But we'll we'll get into the specifics there in a minute. Do you want to do you want to maybe tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and before we jump into that, so it's there was already a precedent set for forced population transfers. So prior to World War II, um, 
there was a war between the Greeks and the Turks. And there was the, what, what settled the war was a massive population exchange. So the, the requirement of the peace deal between that ended the Greco-Turkish War was um, an exchange. So Greek, the Greeks resettled approximately, well, actually, no, I have this backwards. So that 1.5 million Greeks will, were resettled from Turkey to Greece, and around 500,000 Turks were relocated from Greece to Turkey. Oh, which is an interesting, which, which, which is a, not a well-known um, event that took place, but that, that sets up the precedent of, of, or sets up a precedent of, you know, these, these, um, these forced, these forced um, transfers of populations uh, being a viable political solution or geopolitical solution. And of course, the Soviet Union also engaged in mass population and population transfers and, you know, yep. Obviously, before that, before the modern state was created, we're talking about modern states. There was obviously like invading armies that force entire populations like to different regions of the world. We're not talking about that. We're talking about this in the context of like the modern Westphalian state that was created. Um, Before you move um, off that point, it's it's interesting about this this um, population exchange between the Greeks and the Turks is that you know the, the first thing that I thought about when when you you know, wrote this note was, okay, well, this was a mutual resettlement from country to country. But then I, and then I thought about it again and I'm like, okay, well, let's say the U S and Mexico had a conflict and they did a forced resettlement of each other's populations. It wouldn't be very like happy or good in any way for us to say, resettle a couple million Mexican Americans to Mexico and have them boot all of the Americans back to the United States. I think that would upend a lot of people's lives. So in that case, it's like a double forced migration. Just the fact that they agreed to doing this is irrelevant. It's still a forced migration. Yeah. Imagine if you're, I mean, you're, you've been obviously living there for, for many centuries in cases. Mm -hmm. I mean, Greeks have been living in Turkey forever. Um, right, you know, Greeks and, and the had, other Greeks way around as well. Yeah, yeah, but you know, Greeks had been. There's a big legacy of Greek of Greeks living in Turkey all the way back from antiquity. Like that was mm-hmm. like one of the reasons for the Greco for the for the um, invasion. The second Greco Persian War uh, was the Anatolian Greeks, uh, you know, rebelling against the Persian Empire. But it was right. like you know, there's always been it, it, you're uprooting a population and I'm sending them. It, back you know that still is their could be their homeland it's just not their national state but that was right. a political solution back then mm-hmm. imagine if there if that was a political solution now it would be crazy <laughs> like i said the world would be there. outraged let's let's, let's not uh, go there i guess but there's it, nothing there's uh, nothing uh, like that happening but um <laughs> so on this episode we're going to talk about a group of people and we're going to be talking about this group for this episode or the next episode, the and most likely you never heard of them because I've I have never heard of this group until until recently um, until we started until I started doing the research for this episode. The Danube Swabians, Swabians, or Schwabians. Danube Swabians. <laughs> you can tell I've never heard of them prior to <laughs> until just recently. The Danube Swabians, and. Um, one of the reasons you may have never heard of them is because they basically don't exist anymore due to the results of World War II. 
meaning that their culture has almost been completely eradicated. They're, they're, they, they, um, there's, there's, there's few traces of them left. Oh, but the Danube Swabians uh, weren't a thing. They're just, uh, Germans. Well, yeah. So (laughs) the Danube Swabians, what, what they were is that they were the German speaking ethnic group that settled at the various regions in the Danube river in, in Southeastern Europe. Um, the Danube River is the second biggest river in Europe. It you know goes from the Black Forest in Germany and it flows southeast, passing through uh, the borders of about ten different modern states, and it empties out into the Black Sea. So it goes from Germany down into Hungary, Hungary, and then into the Balkans, and then it goes out through Ukraine. Um, but before we get, st- I think Ukraine. I might be saying that wrong, but whatever. That that's not important. Um, before we get started, we need to talk about the the origins of German settlements in northern Balkans and a place called the Pannonian Plains. So, um, which is the area we're talking about is modern day Hungary, Croatia, Serbia, and Slovakia. And there were always German speakers in these regions. However, their presence wasn't really significant until the the um, the 18th and the 19th century. Um, like you said earlier, like German German settlements go back in a lot of cases to like the 1300s through you know, different merchants. But these Germans, you know, they mainly came as a result from, you know, specific policies. Um, in the 18th century, the Habsburg Empire would subsidize German settlements throughout its frontier lands. This area, the Pannonian Plains, Prior to the you know 17, 1800s, uh, probably the 18th century, no one lived there because this this zone was basically a giant war zone between the Ottomans and the Habsburgs. You know these plains in in, in Hungary and places like this, you know these were like these giant super highways where invading armies would come from. So no one super lived there. Flat. Because super flat, super easy to move. Taken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you would be captured and taken back into the Ottoman Empire and made into a Janissary. So, as the Ottoman Empire starts to decline and slowly lose its influence throughout Europe, the Habsburg Empire absorbs a territory known as the Banat. And the Banat is... I need a drink of water real quick. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. 
Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Ooh, my throat just got dry out of nowhere. Hmm. Um, the Banat is the eastern regions of the Pannonian Plains where Serbia, Hungary, and Romania meet. When the Habsburgs take control over the Banat, they find that it's almost completely depopulated and underdeveloped due to, due, due to previous wars between Austrians and the Turks. So the Habsburgs, they repopulate the region with Germans for them to, you know, develop the area with, with industry and agriculture and things like that. Also, they were there to serve as a garrison against the Ottomans. Another reason why the Habsburgs subsidized German settlements throughout the empire was to wane the influence of other ethnic groups in the empire. Because remember, Austria-Hungary is a, is a multi-ethnic political unit. There are 11 different significant ethnicities there, with the Germans being the primary elite, elite caste, and then the Hungarians being the second most powerful group. But then you have your, your, your subjects, you have your Serbs, your Romanians, your Croats, your Slovenes, your Czechs, your... your um, your Serbians, um, you know, they were they were the you know minority groups. So German settlements in the Hungarian half of the empire was actually a way to diminish Hungarian influence, being that Hungary was the second most powerful group. Right. So just add more Germans and wane the influence of the Hungarians in that dual. Mono, you know, duopoly of Austria-Hungary. Makes sense. It's a political move. And and most of these German immigrants, you know, that 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 went to these areas originated in from the regions of Baden, Schwaben, or Schwabia, uh, Württemberg, Bavaria, Hessen, Luxembourg, and Alsace, or Alsace in France. And, and they were mostly Catholic. Um, there were, of course, distinctions between the German groups uh, that went there. Uh, but they eventually became collectively known as the Danube Swabians, since most of them settled along the Danube River. And these settlements were primarily located in modern-day Serbia and Croatia. Uh, the Danubian Swabians became a very wealthy and politically powerful uh, class of, of people compared to the other groups that were living in that region, despite being a minority, uh, along with the Hungarians. And this was obviously to the dismay of many of the Slavs that lived in the region because here comes a you know outside ethnic party and that suddenly sweeps up all the political and and uh, you know financial power. <laughs> but uh, the ethnic situation changes a little bit after uh, World War One with the fall of the Habsburg Empire. After that war, Slavic nationalists in Croatia and Slovenia and Bosnia, Montenegro, Serbia. And also the uh, Vojvodina uh, declared basically a merging of all of these lands into what was known as the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes, which was later called the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. 
which is admittedly easier to say than the kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes. <laughs> That's why they changed the name. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Can you imagine like the United States being called the United Peoples of Britain and Germany and France and <laughs> and, and Mexicans and 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 <laughs> it would just it just be too too long. Um Okay, anyway, so the first king uh, of Yugoslavia was Alexander I. He was also known as Alexander, I'm not going to say the name, of the Serbs, um, uh, Karajorje, Karajorje. I think it's Karajovic. It's got all the symbols on it, and I can't. (laughs) It's all all scribbly and Cyrillic-y. Yeah, it's weird. Um, (laughs) <laughs> but these are guys that we covered a lot in, yeah. in our World War One episode. Yeah, so you can go um, back and listen about them. Um, anyway, Alexander, we'll just call him because it's easy. Uh, you know, we talked about him already, but, you know, the, the capital of this kingdom was the Serbian capital of Belgrade. And the dominant ethnic group here was now the Serbs out of this formation. Um, you know, there was this Serb problem in Austria-Hungary that, we went over in detail from our World War One episodes. If you want more information about that, you should probably go back and listen to that. And then there was also a lot of talks about Austria-Hungary becoming a tri-monarchy, um, basically to include the Serbs because the Serbs were growing so powerful. Um, obviously, that didn't work out that way. Um, a lot of interesting stuff. It's it's kind of a, a lot of the uh, a, or one of the many reasons why World War One happened. So you need that extra context i would refer you back to those episodes but um from here for the purposes of this episode what we need to talk about is is how the german and hungarian nationalist and the banat responded uh to this uh, creation of of yugoslavia by basically declaring the establishment of an independent banat republic in 1918 but this state was immediately crushed by the yugoslav army and banat was annexed into the yugoslav serbia along with its Swabian and, and uh, Hungarian minorities. So, the Danube-Swabians, who were long supported by Vienna's hegemony, by Austria-Hungary's hegemony over the region, now suddenly become an ethnic minority in these independent nations that no longer you know, catered to or preferred or favored <laughs> the German or Hungarian communities. So the, the Swabians of Yugoslavia became known as just Yugoslav Germans. Uh, according to 1921 statistics, the German minority population of the new Yugoslavia included about 500,000 total in Yugoslavia. So that was about 4.21%. Uh, a little over 300,000 in the Serbian Banat and Vojvodina. Um, that's the northern part of Serbia. Uh, about 122,000 uh, in Slavonia, which is Croatia, and 38,000 change in Slovenia. So a lot of people in a lot of different countries. And most of the Germans of Yugoslavia lived in the northern region of that Serbian, but not in Vojvodina. Yeah, so remember that when this happens, so when, when, German, when these Germans become a minority in Yugoslavia, um, you know, without the direct backing or subsidies from the Habsburg Empire, uh, they were far wealthier than the other minority groups in Yugoslavia. So many of the top industrialists of, uh, of Yugoslavia, they were ethnic Germans. Um, you know, a lot of the large estate holders were ethnic Germans. A lot, a lot of the, a lot of the large like farm owners or, or 
or landlords um, were, were ethnic Germans. You have this state of a wealthy ethnic German landowner class, and then you have this poor Slavic peasant majority. So the Yugoslav government embarked on a land redistribution program. And um, I mean, I'll note right here, the Germans were not specifically targeted, targeted on this. It wasn't like, let's just take the Germans land. It was something that was, that was, you know, it, it, it was targeted for Slavic landowners as well. But the fact that Germans were a wealthier class, they were just overrepresented in these land redistribution programs. Man, why can't I say that? So they were impacted the most all this, just, by, just by virtue of it. Just as a percentage of their population, they were mm-hmm. they saw the greatest impact from these. Right. So this kind of sets the um, stage for the Swabians to move towards more nationalist policies or politics. And gradually throughout the 1920s and 1930s, the Danube Sw- Swabian minority in Yugoslavia, they rapidly shift towards these various manifestations of pan-Germanic nationalism. Now, despite these land redistribution programs, the Germans were still relatively well off throughout the 1920s. However, things start to change. Really, they get worse in the 1930s, um, and not just for the Germans, for, for many different ethnic groups in Yugoslavia. In 1929, there's a decision made in Belgrade to further centralize power by royal dictatorship under King Alexander. So remember, Yugoslavia is a multi-ethnic state with a Serbian plurality who lived in central and in the northern parts of the country. The second largest group was the was the Croats, who lived in the western and southern regions. And then you have your Slovenes, your Macedonian, your Macedonians, your Montenegrins, who are kind of I don't know. Some people call them Serbs too. I don't know. Someone could correct me with that. That's just something I've heard that, you know, they have a very strong relationship with the Serbs. Um, then you have your Bosnian Muslims, your Albanians, your Hungarians, and then you have your Germans. And, um, you know, each of these groups had a certain level of autonomy, you know, when the kingdom first started. Well, in 1929, there's this royal coup where, where King Alexander um, dissolved the Yugoslav National Assembly and effectively eliminated the parliamentary government that they had. Funny enough, this was called the January Sixth Coup, <laughs> <laughs> which I find which I find kind of funny. Yeah, the um, original Jan Sixers, right here, huh? The the, the original Jan Six. <laughs> so um, one of one of the justifications for this, uh, you know, centralization of power was to ease ethnic tensions, uh, because remember, a lot of these ethnic groups were formerly. You know, I don't want to get bogged down into like the early 20th century, um, you know, the late 19th century. But all these groups were effectively at one point controlled by the Ottoman empires. And, you know, when the Ottoman Empire, Ottoman Empire imploded, um, you know, they all had their ideas of national sovereignty. And then the Austro-Hungarians annexed part of the territory. And it just kind of creates a fervor of nationalist sentiment. Um, And. This, there was a lot of ethnic uh, rivalry, I guess is the nicest way to say it. Um, you know, there, there was a tension for political power. 
So the so Belgrade solution was this as well. You know, we're all Southern Slavs. That's what Yugoslav means, like land of the Southern Slavs or whatever. Um, we're all Yugoslavian now, so there's no need to have ethnic conflict anymore. We're we're all the we're all Southern Slavs. So let's let's just get over it. Let's put our differences away and right. let's contribute to this this uh, new national identity. So there's no Croats now, and Slovenes anymore. Just everyone's Yugoslavian. That, that yes. was their that was their solution. That that was a solution. It's not, it's not an alien solution either, because like I mean, that's literally the same thing is happening and has been happening in the United States for quite some time. So it's it wasn't a crazy idea. You know, it's a good comparison. It, you know, it's it's like why don't we melt all these cultures together into one into one thing? Mm-hmm. But the difference with the U.S. and and Yugoslavia is that the U.S. is these these ethnic groups have been there for 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 many many for for much longer periods. They of also time. chose that, right? There wasn't like a you know a king in the United States that just up and decided that we're all Americans now. Like we all we all chose that, and everyone who emigrated to the United States chose to be a part of that multi ethnic or just one thing Americans. In this case, Alexander was just like fuck it. You're all Yugoslavian now. There is no Croats. There is no Slovenian. well. Another thing with the United States. Immigration has always been in stages, so there's always been like these periods of time to to uh, to uh, integrate new immigrants into society. Where you know you have your you have your generation because after three generations, you're basically like removed from your from your home, your national homeland or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, let's just say if you're an Italian immigrant, you know your first your your Italian immigrant grandfather is going to be, you know, super into Italy or, you know, that's going to be a big part of his identity. The second generation, their kids who are Americans, that Italian heritage is going to be important to them, but it's not, you know, it's starting to slip. Yeah. It's starting to slip. And then once you have, once your grandchildren, that's, you have grandchildren, your grandchildren are like, oh, that's, that's like, you know, that's something from the old, old country like that has no impact on my identity at all Mm -hmm. i mean some people do take a lot of pride like i'm polish my my grandfather is from poland um not from poland what am i talking about he's from ukraine but he was a pole pole in ukraine and um you know my great grandparents on my maternal grandfather's side were from ireland um you know like i don't speak Polish or anything like that's do you, that's do, a, do you identify culturally as Polish not really no yeah, like you're, I, you're I an identify American. as an American so yeah. I'm completely kind of removed from the ties to the old country mm-hmm. or any type of old country um, my grandfather he he was much more into being Irish mm. because he his well it wasn't my great great grandparents were from, from Ireland um, so his parents were born in New York, but their grandparents were from Ireland, but he was more into Irish, but like, I'm so far removed from it where it's just like, okay, yeah, like, yeah, Aaron go bra. Um, it's kind of like when you do a, uh, when you do a, um, like a DNA test or whatever, you get your 23 me done and you're like, oh, cool. I'm like 8%. I'm Moroccan. Ooh. You're like 8%. I didn't know I know, was Moroccan. Exactly. It's like cool <laughs> but it really has no impact on on your identity i mean for some people they go all out right they're like oh i'm like a 64th native american i'm gonna 
start getting into, you know, doing powwows or something, <laughs> you know. Did you, did you know that I was 4% Finnish? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who would have thought? I just got my DNA test back. I'm 4% Finnish. <laughs> Starts I'm like waving a Finland flag, you know, like. <laughs> I think I, mean, I am 4%. Whatever. Have you taken a DNA test? I did twice. They have no idea what I am. They sent it back to They're me twice. like, this, this is too confusing. Yeah. The first time I thought I just fucked it up. But when they sent it back to me when, the second time, I'm when, like, when right. Arabs and Puerto Ricans mix, it just breaks the system. It's <laughs> yeah, like, that's like, not supposed to happen. Yeah. That's not possible. It does not compute. Uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not ruling out the fact that I might be alien. Um, and that's why they can't figure it out. But uh, I digress. <laughs> Yeah, my my it's it's kind of it's funny because my sister and I we both took one, and my like I my sister, we have the same parents, mm-hmm. uh, first and foremost, right? Allegedly, I think we do. We maybe we have not. Who knows? <laughs> but my sister, my sister is like sixty percent Irish English, and uh, like thirty percent Eastern European, and then. I'm like 60% or 70% Eastern European and like 30% from, you know, the British islands or wherever. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, what the fuck? Like we're related. Like, isn't it supposed to be evenly split? But and it's just, we might be finding out here out that way. But I can attest for those that don't know what Henry looks like or, or definitely not Henry's sister. They are definitely siblings. <laughs> it's not a question. <laughs> definitely not a question. So, um, but no one gives a fuck about this. All right. So, <laughs> um, where the fuck was I? Uh, da, 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 da. We're, we're talking about, okay. so yeah, yeah. Talking about, talking about the, um, centralization of power. So basically what this happens. So when they make Yugoslavia, it has the exact opposite effect. It pisses everyone off. It actually, it creates more uh, nationalism between these different ethnic groups. And I'll quote a an institute that I found. I don't know if they still publish anything, but I did rely a lot on them for this for this episode uh, called the research of the Institute of Expelled Germans. And um, I'll quote from them. It was the transition of U- Yugoslavia from a system of multi-ethnic political confederation to a system of Serbian hegemony that pushed minority groups towards radicalism and discord. The Danube Swabians, like the, Cro- like the Croats and, and Hungarians, rapidly began to separate themselves from integration from Yugoslavia and joined political movements that directly addressed their greatly stimmed, stymied cultural interest. Like the Sudanese Germans in Czechoslovakia, radical pro-German movements that espoused German nationalism became far more relevant to Yugoslavs, Germans than, than to a, than Servi, than Serbians to a highly so alien, to a Serbian, highly alienating Serbian monarchy. Sorry. <laughs> God damn it. I can't fucking read. <laughs> Sorry, man. It's late. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so it's wild. It's, it it's, pisses people off. Yeah, exactly. I guess you can, it's it's hard to psychologize what like was going through King Alexander's head, you know, uh, in doing this. But you know, looking being twenty twenty hindsight, that is, he tried a thing, 
to get rid of this ethnic tension and just made it worse. And prior to Belgrade centralizing these powers, the German parties... And also, and also just to note, before, before we get into it, uh, King Alexander is assassinated oh, yeah, in, 19, <laughs> in 1934 by, by Croat nationalist right. from Bosnia. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it's like, we've actually talked about this in other episodes because it's like a really, really bizarre film footage of it like this is him together with a french diplomat were assassinated and right. it's caught on film yeah and there's literally somebody doing like a play-by-play it's like oh look at the the king of Serbia is coming out of his car or no, the king of yugoslavia is coming out of his car with a french diplomat and he's walking down in his royal prestige oh he's been shot <laughs> like that's <laughs> oh, how he's it, been shot it's, again it's, it's, <laughs> he's he's been shot <laughs> the king it's it's not funny, obviously, that the king was assassinated, but it's just a weird video. It's like, oh, he's been... De- and this royal day of decree is ruined. <laughs> like, it's yeah. so... All right, so... Uh, where were we? We were talking about Alexander got killed. Oh, yeah, he centralized power. So before before um, Belgrade takes over and, and makes Yugoslavia all one thing, before Alexander gets shot... Uh, the Germans that were living in these in these areas, they didn't really express any type of like irredentist sentiment. You know, like they they weren't particularly trying to secede or anything like that. You know, and after 1929, these parties start to gravitate towards the pan-Germanic rhetoric, right? As a response to what's happening. Keep in mind, just to to keep score here. You know, they were living there for many generations. You know, suddenly the empire that invited them to live there dissolves. New thing pops up called Yugoslavia. Things are working out kind of okay, even though they're a minority. Suddenly, the king decides, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna all be one thing, and also we're gonna redistribute a bunch of land." So it really gives people like kind of a bad taste in their mouth. So that's what's kind of pushing them towards these pan-Germanic rhetoric. And one of these political organizations was called the Kulturbund. And the Kulturbund was, uh, like most German diaspora groups, it was sponsored by the National Socialists. Uh, the Third Reich had its own agency to manage the interests of Germans abroad. And as a result, the Yugoslav Germans were subsidied by the Third Reich and the SS. Um, during World War II, Yugoslavia gets pulled into a very dangerous geopolitical situation so in the 1930s yugoslavia pursued a policy of balancing between all of the major powers in europe initially yugoslavia wanted to be neutral and just kind of non-aligned you know doing their own thing in the background but as germany starts expanding its influence in the region a lot of the yugoslav leaders attempt to improve their relations with the third reich and for germany keeping lid on you know the simmering tensions in the balkans was a pretty high priority. They they saw, you know, an issue coming a mile away. They were very eager to prevent any kind of disturbances in the region, both to prevent further Soviet encroachment and to retain German access to the oil from Romania. And that was obviously super important for their war machine. The Yugoslav monarch, you know, he enters a tripartite act on March 25th 1941 which is and then just two days later there's a coup and the serbian nationalists sponsored by the british remove the axis aligned government that coup 
uh, resulted in the establishment of a new Yugoslav government that was anti-access. And Hitler responds like snap decision by declaring war on that new government and invading Yugoslavia. And it takes German army maybe two weeks to conquer the entire government. Most so uh, yeah. Go ahead. So 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 Germany. So Yugoslavia takes a non-aligned stance. They start to open up to the idea of working with Germany. They sign. They enter into the you know the pact with Germany, Italy, and Japan. And then two days later, there's a sponsor. There's a coup. And the coup is from Serbian nationalists who are sponsored by the British. Right. And, you know, you have to understand where the British were here. They were, I don't know if the British were, were trying to bog them into a quagmire, which we'll get into, or, or, or what the motivation is. Obviously at this moment in 1941, this is, this is, this is uh, three months prior to the, Operation uh, Barbarossa. So right. you know they're they're this they're very much they're very much alone um, fighting the Germans. Right. So and then, um, and then Hitler goes nuts and he's just like fuck it we're going to war and he does this kind of like randomly you know like well not randomly it was with with cause but certainly a decision that that happened very very quickly um, and given that the German army was able to conquer all of Yugoslavia in two weeks. I mean, for, for Hitler, I mean, that's a kind of like a win there. And a lot of, um, historians argue that, that Germany was, was actually reluctant to invade Yugoslavia, but they were pressured by the Axis powers, Bulgaria, Hungary, and Romania. And the Balkans was basically a very strategic position for the invasion of the Soviet Union in June of 1941. So taking over that land was kind of important and, and keeping a lid on that was super super important also there's all of these simmering tensions in the balkans that were it was just a tinder pot waiting you know waiting to explode here so it, you know they they wanted to the germans wanted to prevent some shit going down in the region both so that the the, the soviets couldn't do anything about it and also again to keep access to the oil in romania now, what throws and the room, Italians were already fucking things up too. Exactly. So Italy, <laughs> so Italy, so Italy had invaded Greece in 1940, mm-hmm. and um, Hitler was upset about it. You, you know, they were the the Third Reich was like, "This is not like, don't do, please do not do this, please right. do not do this. Like this is this is just going to cause all sorts of problems for us." Um, Mussolini did it anyway, and. Um, Basically, what happens is that they invade because the Italians they had uh, occupied Albania since like man I forget what year they started occupying Albania I think like two years prior since like 1939 mm-hmm. and um, what they did is that they you know they the Albania was like their their where their base of operations was mm-hmm. so they Greek is all mountains you know so they right. go up to Greece and. They're, they can't really handle the terrain and they're pushed back and the British are supporting the Greeks as well. So they pushed the Italians back into, um, back into Albania. And then, you know, Germany is kind of, that's when Germany really gets involved in that region even prior to the invasion of Yugoslavia. Um, cause they invade Greece, um, but, um, the Italians also were like a big factor in um 
in um, the reason for Germany the going wide to Third Reich. Mm-hmm. But um, we sure. can get you know we'll get let's let's not get stuck in the details of this because yeah. we we'll, won't well, get to the point. What we need to know about that invasion is that it leads to Yugoslavia being carved up between the different Axis powers from 1941 to late 1944, and then we have a new Yugoslav king, Peter the Second. Uh, he was thrown into exile uh, as a result. Uh, Bulgaria seizes Macedonia. It, Italy annexes Slovenia, Montenegro, and the coastline of Bosnia and Croatia, so Dalmatia. And Germany occupies, um, occupies, <laughs> Germany occupied uh, Serbia proper. So if, if we recall those regions that we were talking about, uh, earlier in the show, the Banat and the Vojvodina regions of northeast Serbia, uh, where m- most Yugoslavs, like the, the Yugoslavian Germans, lived, uh, those parts of the territory were absorbed into Axis Hungary. And towns in the Banat with uh, German majorities were once again elevated to the status of an autonomous administrative uh, exclave within the Third Reich. So they, they get put back on the pedestal there. And they become a puppet protectorate regime uh, that was set up under the uh, German direction in, in Belgrade. Um, Croatian ultranationalists break away from Yugoslavia, and they merge with Bosnia, and they they set up a state supported by Italy and Germany called the Independent State of Croatia. And what follows uh, this shakeup was just this tragic, ridiculous scenario of ethnic cleansings and genocide that is committed by each ethnic group of the dismantled Yugoslavia. Each group violently sees the opportunity for, you know, the independence that was denied to them by the Serbian-dominated Yugoslav monarchy. So Serbs, Albanians, Croats, Bosnians, Muslims, Orthodox, Catholics, Swabians, Hungarians, Communists, on and on and on, as well as the Third Reich, all of them, every single one, participates in some of the bloodiest atrocities of World War II that, frankly, nobody talks about. Dormant ethnic hatred between the Croats and the Serbs, they decimate the Balkans, while the communist brigades and the Serb nationalists engage in mutual massacres from here. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. 
Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. So, it's pretty hot. Let's just put it that way. Well, I think what you have to understand is that it's like it's it's World War Two in Yugoslavia is like super complex, man. It doesn't even make any sense when you read about it. Like there are so many contradictions in it, um, because it's like there's so many different groups, and you know we just talked about the ethnic groups, but there's also a communist movement there. Mm-hmm. There's there's fascist movements there. There's royalist movements there. Um, this wasn't a case of like the Nazis fighting Yugoslav rebels. And there was like this, this one unified Yugoslav rebellion. Um, there was all these ethnic groups that were fighting for their own, for their own interest. And um, just to kind of map out a picture, you had, you had your Axis powers, you had German and Italian troops. There were the Yugoslav Royalist forces or the Chetniks who were loyal to the exiled Yugoslav government. Um, King, King Peter, the second, you had your partisan communist groups led, led by, by Tito. You had your Ustasha, and the Ustasha were the were the the, the fascist, um, ultranationalist um, Croatians who worked with the Axis. And then you had your you know your other groups like your Slovenian and your Albanian partisans, and even like gypsies were organized together, and they were had they had these armed militias. Even so, the gypsies. Yeah, even the gypsies that they weren't already dangerous. Now they're organized. So there, there was all these. There was all. I mean, the situation was fucked. Like that's like the only way to, yep. to really to really say it. And throughout the war, with um, the the Third Reich, they were often at odds with these different powers in both like a military and political sense. I mean, like their own allies, they had to create this coalition and a lot of the, you know, members of their coalitions hated hated each other. Um, Another big problem for the Germans were the, these guerrilla armies that they were fighting because, you know, there's not like some uniform that they're going into. It's like the hostile towns, basically. It's like, Oh, this is a hostile town. We need to go. We need to go, um, you know, basically eradicate everyone in that town because they've, they're unfavorable to Germans. Like that's the type of stuff that's like written on in those like SS reports. You know, this town is unfavorable to German presence. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's like an order to to kill every single military age male. I'll quote. Um, I'll grab a quote from. Um, I'll go back before I quote this. What what it was like, and this is like a common used uh, analogy, but it was like German. It's everyone's Vietnam, but it was Germany's Vietnam. You know it. The complexities of of World War II and Yugoslavia, they kind of remind me of the complexities of like the 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 Middle East wars now, mm-hmm. or the Middle East wars in the past like fifteen years, because it's like you have all these groups fighting each other, and like some groups are allied with the U.S. and this border, you know the the uh, like for example the Iraqi Shia are allied with the with the um, with the U.S. 
in Iraq, but they're enemies with the U.S. and and if they go over the border in Syria. So like mm-hmm. wacky stuff like that was was um. There's like all these weird contradictions of like who the allies were and who 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 was on whose side. Wasn't clear. Um, and also, mm-hmm. and also the German divisions that were down there, they were um, you know, they weren't the main guys. You know, the main guys were were f- fighting on the Eastern Front. Um, you know, they were they were fighting the Soviet Union. Um, I'll read from historian Elliot Cohen. So most of the German divisions in Yugoslavia were severely under strength with as little as one-third the normal complement of men and equipment. They were the equivalent of brigades or regiments. In other words, even though the general staff situation map showed divisional flags, only one or two could be considered first-line units. Um, the rest were, by the German evaluation system, second- or third-line units composed of older or disabled men, and in many cases, not of Germans at all, but of demoralized auxiliaries from the Third Reich. With communist and national nationalist opponents concluding local truces to fight each fight each other throughout the war, the German held on to what they wanted most: the large cities, the large cities, the railroads, the industrial centers. So, um, the Germans would often lead these occupation duties to uh, other Axis powers, including Croatia. Mm-hmm. Um, other formations were 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 um, were locally recruited Germans, um, but then you also had your your Croat and your your uh, Ukrainian legions with the German army, and um, you had your um, your your regional Swabian recruits in the SS. But before we get into the Germans that joined the Third Reich, you know a way to look at the um i guess the way that hitler kind of envisioned um world war ii and you know his coalition was this like pan-european army that was fighting a crusade against the soviet union because under that i mean there's so many divisions if you look at the ss there's like so many divisions that you've never heard of like the you know the moroccan division of the ss and, mm-hmm. and um you know there was it really was you know there there was a million russians who fought who, who fought with the Vermont uh, or fought on the side of, of Germans. Um, and these were Russians who were, who were obviously had an ax to grind with the Soviet union. So, um, I mean, in this sense, it really is like an ideological war going back to our theme, right? You, know, you have all these different groups that are, that are basically joining a crusade against, against communist Marxism. And, um, it's, um, but then it also is an ethnic war at the same time because all these groups still hate each other. Right. It's um, on ethnic lines. It's 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 like really hard to conceptualize and and to, and to understand. And I feel like, you know, we we obviously can't do it justice. It would just take years and years of studies to really get a grasp on this on this theater of the war. So, um, going back. So, um, this this going back to the Swabians. So the Swabians are drafted into the German military and they're placed under the SS division, Prince Eugen. That's you. You're a German speaker. Am Eugen. I pronouncing that right? Prince Eugen. Eugen. Uh, Eugen Prince is Eugen. fine. Prince Eugen, which is led by a, uh, it's not even led by a, it's led by a Transylvanian uh, Saxon named Arthur Fleps. And uh, Prince Eugen 
is a very brutal SS unit. Um, they were they were created for these anti-partisan insurgencies. So, for example, you know some of the policies that they had is that um, a lot of the partisans were Serbs. So they had issued decrees that for every ethnic German or civilian that was killed by a Yugoslav partisan, they would go and kill 100 Slavic civilians. That would be the reprisal for it. Mm. So as a result of this, a lot of these Slavic towns in Yugoslavia are just burnt to the ground and all their inhabitants are executed. So any signs of hostility, if there's a hostile population, just go kill everyone. That's that's the only way to, to settle it. Can you imagine if that was happening now? What would what would yeah. our response be? Yeah. But good again, let's not go not down that way. Yeah, good thing. So I here's I got something from I have a testimony from the Nuremberg trials, and I want to just make the disclaimer: this testimony is from the Yugoslav State Commission. And, you know, it's signed and written by socialist leaders, but I'm sure this is not completely made up. I'm going to read the, uh, the quote, and this is about the, the, uh, the SS division just mentioned, the Prince Eugen, which was the uh, primary recruiter of Swabians, so Yugoslav Germans. The various German divisions operating in the area of occupied Yugoslavia mark their path by traces of devastation and annihilation of the peaceful population, traces with which will testify to the criminal character of the German conduct of the war for many years to come. The operation of the German divisions were in reality punitive expeditions. They destroyed and burned down whole villages and exterminated the civil population in barbarous manner without any military necessity whatsoever. The, FS, the 7th SS Division, Prince Eugen, is famed for its cruelty. Wherever it passed through Serbia, through Bosnia, through Herzegovina, through Laika and Banija, or through Damasia, everywhere it left behind scenes of conf- conflagration and devastation, in the bodies of innocent men and women and children who had been burnt in, in the houses. At the end of May 1943, the Prince Eugen Division came to Montenegro to the area of Nitzik in order to take part, of, part in the 5th enemy offensive in conjunction with the Italian troops. This offensive was called Action Black by the German occupying forces. Proceeding with Herzegovina, parts of the division fell upon the peaceful village of the Nitzik district. Immediately after its invasion, this formation opening fire with all of its armed commenced, commenced to commit outrageous crimes on the peaceful villages for no reason at all. Everything they came across, they burnt down, murdered, and pillaged. The officers and men of the SS Division, Prince Eugen, committed crimes of an outrageous cruelty on this occasion. The victims were shot, slaughtered, and tortured, or burned to death in burning houses. Where a victim was found, not in his house, but not on the road or in the field some distances away, he was murdered and burned there. Infants with their mothers, pregnant women, and frail old people were also murdered. In short, every civilian met met with by these troops in these villages was, were, was murdered. 
in many cases, whole families who, not expecting such treatment or lacking the time for escape, had remained quietly in their homes, were annihilated and murdered. More families were thrown into burning houses in many cases and thus burned. It has been established from the investigations entered upon 121 persons, mostly women, including 30 persons aged 60 to 92 years, and 29 children of ages ranging from 6 months to 14 years, were executed on this occasion in the horrible manner narrated above. This village and then follows the village and then follows a list of villages that were burned. Okay, I'm reading from the burner All right, I don't need that part. So, um, there were horrible, horrible war crimes that were committed. Um, and these are obviously alleged. Maybe there are. This is there is some propaganda elements because it's coming from the Yugoslav government, but. Um, it was absolutely a matter of fact, but that, I mean, war crimes were being committed. Well, it was a matter from, of fact that the, the, from the third Reich. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's a matter of fact that the, that the policy of this SS division was to kill up to a hundred people for any one, you know, death of a German citizen or soldier. So, you know, w- when they say, when this, you know, pe- paragraph says like it was for no reason, you're right. The loss of life is is senseless and and had no military reason. But you know the the Germans were the the Third Reich was pretty clear about what they were going to do. You know, if you even so much as fuck with us, we're gonna we're gonna burn your fucking city down. You know, um, so it's not justifiable, but it's it, they were very clear about that. And so why I believe this passage is because the Germans were very clear about what their policy was on that stance. You know. I also note that the the war crimes that were committed by the Croats are were particularly important in relation to the fate of the Swabians because both of the two were depicted after the war as, you know, complicit Nazi belligerents. In other words, you know, the Croatian nationalists who adopted their own rendition of racialism and Aryan identity, they independently persecuted or murdered a higher percentage of its population in mob killings and in Croatian concentration camps than any other access country. I'll repeat that another way. These Croatian nationalists that spring up later killed more people as a proportion of their population than any other access country, including the Germans. Now, according to the German political scientist Stefa Wolf, it has been estimated that one-third of the two million Serbs in Croatia's southeastern region of Krajina and eastern Bosnia were executed. One-third were forcibly assimilated and converted to Croatian Catholicism, and one-third were expelled. 75% of Croatia's Jews, or thirty to 40,000, died during the war. So you know, these atrocities that the Croats were doing were so drastic that even the SS— the guys who we just talked about burning a whole village down, those guys were shocked at how bad these Croatians were. And they tried to apply pressure on the Croatian nationalist groups to slow down and and you know don't further radicalize the you know the the communist partisans that that were against them. Wehrmacht General Edmund Glaze von Hortenstahl, Horstenau, excuse me, um reported the following to the German high command or the Oberkommando der Wehrmacht. Um, the, he said, our troops have to be mute witnesses of such events. It does not reflect well on their otherwise high reputation. 
I am frequently told that German occupation troops would finally have to intervene against the Ustase crimes. This may happen eventually. Right now, with the available forces, I could not ask for such action. Ad hoc intervention in individual cases could make the German army look responsible for the countless crimes which it could not prevent in the past. So, by the way, the word Ustase is is the, the Croatian group that we're talking about. That's the their formal name. And so... In another report, um, a Gestapo report to the Reichsführer, you know, Himmler, uh, which was dated on on February 17th, 1942, uh, stated that increased activity of the bands of rebels is chiefly due to atrocities carried out by the Ustase units in Croatia against the Orthodox population. The Ustase committed their deeds in a bestial manner, not only against males of conscript age, but especially against helpless old people, women, and children. The number of Orthodox that the Croats have massacred and sadistically tortured to death is about 300,000. So <laughs> what's wild is, you know, there's obviously the pot calling the kettle black here, right? When the, when the SS are the ones saying like, hey, these guys are fucking crazy, right? They're killing everybody indiscriminately. Obviously, they were doing the same thing. But for someone who I think everyone would agree is, is like evil, <laughs> like a group that's just doing some evil shit, to say that some other group is doing even more evil shit, that means that they're doing some fucking evil shit, you know? So it's, uh, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, it was quite bloody. And, and just, and just to, uh, add, and I think this is what we're going to break this episode out because we're at an hour and 20 minutes and we have another, we have a shitload more, more to go. So we're going to save the um, the second part of this, where um, basically the end of the war and, and ultimately the fate of the Germans as a as a as a reaction to to um, to the Axis invasion mm-hmm. uh, for the next episode, and yep. and it is it is quite awful the testimonies that come from from German refugees. But I just want to be clear, in Yugoslavia, the Third Reich and, you know, in uh, its collaborators were not the uh, the only groups that were committing horrible war crimes. This was, these were, the Chetniks were, were committing horrible crimes. Like, I was talking about the, just the complexity of, like, the, of the war. You know, that the Chetniks were the royalist groups, and... It kind of resembled how the relationship between how the Chinese Civil War or the Sino-Japanese War, it has those elements to it because you have groups that are both opposed to the Germans, but then also opposed to each other. When when I'm saying the Chetniks and the partisan communists, they both opposed the Germans, but they both hated each other. But then they both collaborated with each other in some cases against the Germans. And then in some cases, the Chetniks would collaborate with the Germans against the partisans. And then in some cases, the Vermont would be supporting um, one group of Chetniks. And then the SS would be supporting another group of Chetniks. And then they would be fighting each other. Like, it was like, it's just in, it, insanity, insanity. Like, yeah. you know, they, the, there were cases where like the SS and the Vermont were like supporting or, or like the German military were supporting different groups that they were allied with and they were fighting each other. So it was just, 
it was, it, it was it was such a clusterfuck. But but I think what's important to take away from this and and what kind of started this this like the theme of this episode and we'll continue in next in the next episode is that while all of this insanity is happening in terms of alliances and 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 who's doing what and who's siding with who there are very real populations in these areas that are either being cold-blooded murdered forcibly displaced or put into concentration camps or some combination of all three of those things and you know that's the result of of this ideological conflict or ethnic conflict again and or because like what conflict. is it because i feel like I still we still have that resolved. all ethnic conflicts are ideological conflicts by by nature but not all uh i but not all ideological conflicts are ethnic so it's like uh well i feel like i feel like the the resolute we haven't come to the resolution of of whether of whether ethnic or ideological wars are more violent um but I guess in this case, what makes it so confusing, it's every, it's everything wrapped into one. It's, mm-hmm. it's ethnic conflict with ideological overtones. And then theological, you no, know, because there's Serbs, there. because there's, yeah. there's also Serbs, you know, the Serbs are the dominant group here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, Tito is from Croatia. Right. So you have, you know, communists fighting, you know, communist Serbs and communist Ser- uh, Croatians fighting, you know, royalist royalist um or pro-yugoslav um or anti-communist serbs in 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 croatia and so it's just and honestly the crimes that the crimes that are committed by by tito's group the the communist partisans are we're going to be talking about that more in 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 the next episode because they're also extremely severe yep uh and then to, to add all this into it the soviet union finally enters the picture as well um as as the as the uh, third Reich retreats from Yugoslavia, and they release hell on earth, you know, to to everything that they pass. Um, but let's save this for the next episode. Sounds good. Um, anything that you want to add? Nope. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Bro History. Uh, it is our three hundredth episode. It is crazy that we've been doing this for so long. Um, we appreciate everyone who's been listening, new listeners and people who've stuck around since the inception of this podcast. It always means a lot. Um, if you want to support the channel, you can join our Patreon. You can also join our Slack channel through our Patreon. And then the easiest way to support us is just by rating and reviewing the podcast. We always say this because it's very helpful. Rate and review the podcast. It is the number one way to support our show. If you're listening on Apple, if you're listening on on, um, on whatever the other big one is, Spotify. Spotify. Or YouTube now. We're there too, if y'all want to. Oh, yeah, we're on YouTube as well. Um, we get about 50 views a, a, uh, a episode on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, some, something about fine. hour and a half podcasts with uh, no video uh, really don't really jive well on the YouTube platform. Well, I don't even realize that. I didn't even realize that we were on YouTube until yeah. like a couple of weeks ago but yeah, we're I've, on youtube as well <laughs> i don't think we get ad revenue from youtube though so listen to Not your yet. podcast app instead yeah but um we will see you next week yep peace peace
spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts.